0: Thanks, Brian. Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany. Glad that you can be with us here in the Sanctuary and across the street as well in the chapel and uh, online. Let's take a moment, we'll pray together, and then we'll look at what Paul has to say actually this morning about evangelism. So let's pray. Father, we'd like to pause and thank you for the privilege of gathering here within these walls, listening for your voice. And we trust, pray, and ask that your Holy Spirit would teach us now, Father, and that you would shape us to be people who represent your heart in our city and our world, Father. Uh, We're grateful for the opportunity to do so. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The word evangelism. Uh, often, in a circle like ours, elicits negative responses, which is ironic, because the word "evangel" literally means—does anyone know? Good news. The word means good news, and yet when I say evangelism, like there's a there's a like a visceral, ooh, it feels a little can feel a little yucky. Like what we picture is. You're going to hell, or the guy with the sandwich board in front of the sounder game, or, or the person down at the uh, Pike Place Market, you know, preaching in a certain way. When I attended Cal Poly uh, down San Luis Obispo State in architecture, there was a guy I can't remember his name, but he had a kind of reputation of going from campus to campus to campus, and he was this angry guy preaching the gospel. So he'd be in the kind of the public square. But he'd be yelling at people, and anyone who confronted him, uh, he would really talk about how, how hot hell's going to be for them, and it was just like, really ugly, in my opinion, right? So, what i do this morning is think about evangelism through the lens of what Paul has to say about evangelism in Romans chapter 15, which I think and hope will be meaningful, and I'm going to begin with this kind of obvious from the biblical perspective um, observation, and yet not so obvious because we often miss this. First observation before we get into the text, the church has never been called to make converts, ever. Never, ever, ever. We're called to not witness. Witness isn't a verb in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We're called to be witnesses. Witnesses announce who we are, not what we do. And we're called to make the good news clearly visible to all people. We're called to make it visible. So our question isn't how can we get more people in these seats Our question is, how can we best represent Christ? How can we represent Christ with full accuracy so that people seeing the life of Christ, people experiencing the presence of Christ, people encountering the values of Christ, and people understanding the future reign of Christ, will be drawn in because the news is so very, very good, right? That's why I asked Brian to have you share a story this morning, good news. When you have good news, you don't not share it. You want to share it, actually, because it's good news. Oh, I killed it on the the sales thing, uh, was my conversation this morning. Or he came home early, or mine was super good skiing on Thursday afternoon, you know. It's all good news, good news, good news. And yet, we come to the gospel, and often... We're afraid to share it, and I'm sure part of the reason is I'm not yet convinced we believe that it's all that good, right? So we're going to look at that this morning. Why? Let me give you the context. All the way back in Romans chapter 1, Paul said this I am not ashamed of the gospel. And if if we just translate the word gospel, good news, this is what Paul's saying I'm not ashamed of the good news. It's, it's the best news. It's better than meeting our sales goals. It's better than a powder day. It's better than any good news you heard in here. Why? Because this news, the gospel, is the source of all healing, all justice, all hope, all joy. It's the source of uh, what will break down all dividing walls so that nations will be ja- gather together, enemies will, will be reconciled, diseases will be healed. The gospel is the opening up to beauty, intimacy, meaning, healing, forgiveness, and adventure. Why wouldn't you? want to both embody that and invite people into that. That's the deal. So this morning, a couple of facets of Paul's perspective on evangelism. First, his, his understanding of the call to evangelism. And then uh, second, his strategy for evangelism. I'll warn you, spend most time on the first part, the call to evangelism. We'll conclude really with a little, uh, some observations at the end. But let's look at these facets of evangelism. When Paul's thinking about his call to evangelism, uh, he articulates his motive... Uh, and, and, and then uh, we begin there, and then he goes on and articulates his goal and his means. So what's Paul's motive? Well, look at verses 16 and 17 of Romans 15. This is what Paul says. He says, I've written very boldly uh, to you on some points to remind you because of the grace given to me to be a minister of Christ, to Je- Christ Jesus, a minister of Christ to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest, the good news of God. So he's ministering as a priest, the good news of God, so that his offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable. So remember what priests did? Priests offered offerings in the Old Testament, right? There was a tabernacle and then a temple. There's an altar. And the priest, who's kind of the mediator between God and humanity, would offer offerings to God that would enable people then to to be rightly related to God. So that's the whole priesthood thing. And what Paul is saying here is my desire is to offer a sacrifice to God, but the sacrifice that I want to offer is my desire is to see people offering themselves as sacrifice to God. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, offer your body as a living sacrifice. So Paul's desire is to see everyone living this life of of sacrifice, right? Uh, And that's why he is involved in his ministry of being the presence of Christ in the world, not so that people get their ticket punched and and get to go to heaven when they die, though they do, but Paul's desire is to see every person live the life for which they're created. And the only way that any of us can live the life for which we're created is to enter into this kind of continual offering of ourselves as a sacrifice. So for Paul, every time his influence in the life of another results in the other offering some element of their life as a sacrifice, then Paul's like this, boom, nailed it. In other words, I want you, not you generically, But all of us, but Paul says, look, I want you to be free, and I want you to live the life for which you're created. Why? Ephesians 2, verse 8. We, all of us collectively, we are God's workmanship. When God created you, Psalm 139, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. God has something in mind for everyone in the room. He's gifted you. He's called you to somehow be the presence of Christ in the world through the use of your gifts, through your presence at work, through your presence in your home, through your family life, through the way that you relate to your neighbors, through the way that, that, that you vote, through the way that you give, the way you use your resources. God's desire is that you would bless the world. And so he has a specific plan for you. And what's standing between you and that plan is first... You need to enter into the reconciliation provided through Christ, but then you need to offer your life again and again and again. Romans 12, offer your life a living sacrifice. What does that actually mean, this sacrifice thing? Well, Jesus said it this way, over and over again in the Gospel of John, he had a little phrase, not my own. My teaching is not my own. My authority is not my own. My works are not my own. My time is not my own. My judgment is not my own. My strength is not my own. My life is not my own. Jesus lived a life, a sacrifice. In other words, Jesus lived with empty hands saying, okay, God, what do you want today? Not where do I wanna go today, but God, where do you want to take me today? Because my life is yours. I, it's, it's yours. God, do what you want And so Paul's desire, his motive for evangelism is to get people into heaven, though people go to heaven. His motive for evangelism is to get people to live the life for which they're created. And the only way that we can live lives that will fulfill God's design for us is sacrifice. It's the only way. So if we're to be evangelists, not only do we want other people to live lives of sacrifice, but the starting point for a life of sacrifice, it all begins with who? With us, right? I must live a life every day of allowing God to peel away the layers so that my time, my money, my sexuality, my relationship with my neighbors, my, my, my politic, my church life, everything is on the altar, and God is peeling away layers, saying, oh... This needs to go. Oh, this needs to come in. I'm changing you. That's what, that's what Paul wants. So that people can live the life for which they're created. Jesus said, John 10, I came that you might have life. And he said it to people who are already alive. But though they're living physically, they're not living the life for which they're created. And when Jesus said, I came to give you life, that's the life that he comes to give, a life of joy and hope and mercy and peace and wisdom. It's that life. For that to happen, you need to live a life of, boom, sacrifice. What does that mean? Well, will give you a couple of examples. One guy I shared uh, uh, an article with a guy. It was actually a mountaineering article from Alpinist Journal, but because of his sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, he's reading the article, and this guy r- writes in the article, he's a Polish climber, and he, he writes about um, letting go of a habit in his life that, uh, to use his words, he said, uh, when I do this, I realize it's not very dignified. And then this guy wrote me an email, and he said, Richard, when I, when I read that phrase in the article, not dignified... I was convicted by the Holy Spirit that I drink too much and that by the end of the evening, I am, quote, not dignified. So he said, I'm giving up drinking. That's pretty, in my opinion, that's pretty powerful, right? I'm just reading a little article, but I'm open enough to the Holy Spirit that when the Holy Spirit, when I read this phrase, not dignified, the Holy Spirit just kind of sweeps in. bam, bam. That's you with your scotch you're not dignified, and then he deals with it. So I, mean, I wanna encourage you to live that kind of a life so that layer after layer is being peeled away. I'll give you one example of my own life as well. When I got up early this morning, <clears throat> I was reading uh, a New York Times article entitled, do not disturb how I ditched my phone and unbroke my brain. That was the name of the article. And this guy, uh, he's a tech writer for the New York Times, so he obviously uses his phone all, a lot, and the article's all about him going to a, like a uh, tech therapy program, basically, for people who are addicted to their, to their phones. And as I'm reading, it, I'm like, yeah, that's, there's no way that's me, uh, because I'm not addicted to my phone. But then, uh, last time before I went to bed, I looked at my iPad, which tells, I don't have it here, but it tells me how much time I spent on my iPad today. Uh, How much time in this and this and this, whatever. Social media and news and... And so, like, I write my sermons on my iPad, so that's my... This is my defense mechanism going up right now, telling you I I don't have a problem, right? I write my sermons on there. And, also true, right? Yesterday, eight hours and 44 minutes on this little piece of whatever, this thing, right? And then I'm reading the article, and when this guy goes to the counselor... And she says, how much are you using your phone? And he pulls up his thing, oh, five hours and 20 minutes or whatever, a little bit over five hours. And she goes, you're an addict. <laughs> and mine was eight, <laughs> right? So then I read the whole article. And this, and this guy like, uh, like he, the, the article culminates with a 48 hour phone fast, basically. And he talks about how different his life is on the, other, on the far side of breaking this addiction. And the Holy Spirit is doing this thing. Like, Richard, like, when you're at home, particularly when I'm at home uh, and we're sitting around in the evenings, we can be having conversations and I'm still doing this thing. And so the, the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? So the point isn't the phone or the scotch. The point is a life of sacrifice. So I want to encourage you, <clears throat> this is the good news of the gospel. You're created for this life, whatever's saying away, when you put that on the altar, you take a step closer to the life for which you're created. So if we're going to be, you know, people of good news, it has to work in us too. And the good news is, like, we're trying to clean up our own lives so that we can represent Christ and live the life for which we're created. And then that brings us to the kind of the second observation here in the text, Paul's Paul's kind of, we, we begin with uh, his motive for evangelism. He wants to see all of us live the life of which we're created. Very similar, but with a slight nuance. Uh, his goal for evangelism is a single phrase, I'm after the obedience of the Gentiles. That's what Paul says, obedience to the Gentiles. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about the Gentile part of it in a second. But for now... I'm going to focus on the the word obedience. And here's why. I think in our culture, obedience has a negative connotation. And by our culture, I mean Seattle. And here's why. First of all, like A, we live in the land of the free, right? So if I if we live in the land of the free, nobody's gonna tell us what to do. Don't tell me what kind of car to drive, don't tell me what to do with my guns, don't tell me to wear a seatbelt, don't tell me to wear a helmet. Don't look! I am, and it was what we say. No, no, wait a minute! I value my what? Freedom, right? They can take away our whatever, said William Wallace, but not our freedom. Like we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna live. You know, we're gonna live our own lives. Like I'm master of my own fate. I'm gonna do my own thing. I'm free. And here's the thing: uh, the uh, the America was settled on the East Coast. And then people who felt the East Coast was too constrictive moved west. And then people kept moving west until there was no place left to move. So if people move further west, where are we? Like you can't get any further west than us. So nobody values freedom more than us. And we we see it in our culture, right? It's, it's, you know, self-reliance and... I'm on my own, and the Seattle uh, chill, or whatever it's called. Like, yeah, we don't need, who needs people? We've got our own stuff, right? So, like, freedom sounds so contrary to obedience, that so obedience has a negative connotation. But what, what Paul is after here is not the negativity of obedience, but the positivity of alignment with our calling. Does that, does that make sense? Positivity of alignment with our calling. So, um, years ago, when we lived in the North Cascades, we would drive down to uh, Mount Vernon. If you know Seattle or you know the area, you know Highway 20. We'd drive down back to Mount Vernon because that's where our our daughters would take uh, violin lessons and we'd do our shopping there and then we'd go back up the mountain where we ran a wilderness thing. We went down one time and uh, we're in the mall because my daughter's doing a violin concert in the mall. That's violin, for those who don't know, <laughs> she's doing a violin concert in the mall. And uh, uh, there's a chiropractor in the mall uh, who's, there's a, like a team of chiropractors, and they're like free spinal assessment, right? So I'd been, you know, running all through college, but recently when I, I'd run a 10K and the next morning I couldn't get out of bed and I thought, well, I wonder if, if there's something wrong with my spine. So I went to this free assessment thing and the, and the uh, chiropractor's looking at me from behind. So I'm looking this way and I don't see the chiropractor, but he's doing whatever he does, with shining light on my spine and this kind of thing. And then he leaves the little area, and he goes, and I, this is all I hear. So I'm looking this way. I can't see him. He goes to the other two chiropractors. He says, hey, you guys got to come see this. I've never seen anything like it. This is unbelievable. <laughs> now, that's not a very encouraging, like, uh, sign, right? And then he said, he said, your, your uh, pelvis here is super torqued. Like, it's like both this and this. And he goes, do you have shoulder pain? Yes. Do you have knee pain? Yes. Do you, like... Blah blah blah. And he goes, oh well, I know why. It's not supposed to look like this, it's supposed to look like this, right? And he says, we can we can fix that. And then I go, really? And then he goes, Yeah, lie down. And then Kh-. and I, I can feel an inch taller immediately, right? And and suddenly I just feel better. Now I'm not here, this is an advertisement for chiropractic. <laughs> this is not the point. The point of the moment is just to say this. Look. Uh, alignment, physically, physiologically, alignment, it's a thing, isn't it, right? And so if you're aligned, you run better, you, you sleep better, you walk taller, your weight's on both feet, it's all good, like when you're aligned. He said, what'd you do? Like, how come you're so twisted? And I said, I played uh, drums in a bagpipe band. Imagine like a 10-pound steel drum on your left leg, and the sling is on your right, and you're doing parades every weekend, like... Six-mile parade in San Francisco. This is who I am, right? And then, right, that's the way it works, alignment. And then when I'm aligned, I'm better. Here's the point. Obedience to God's revelation is alignment for you. Not physiologically, but spiritually. Obedience is alignment. And so when the Holy Spirit brings conviction regarding your sexuality, regarding your money, regarding confession of sin, regarding vulnerability, regarding intimacy, regarding your thought life, regarding how much time you're spending on the internet, regarding uh, your, your scotch or your wine or your haagen The Doesn't matter. When the Holy Spirit brings conviction, listen. Why? Because God's calling you to alignment. And God has this thing for you, this plan that's better than anything else. That's why it's good news, not bad news. That's why obedience is good news because obedience to the revelation of the Holy Spirit brings alignment. And the tragedy is this. Many of us begin walking with Jesus and then the layers begin peeling away and then there comes some layer and we hang on. We say, nope, I'm gonna keep my cynicism. I'm gonna keep my quiet addiction. I'm gonna keep my lustful thought life. I'm gonna keep this one thing. And then the growth stops and when the growth stops, then you're, like, not only are you are not aligned, but you're becoming, like, it's getting worse. Are you with me? So the growth, like, you, now there's no alignment. And when there's no alignment, you, you're incapacitated to live the life for which you're created. And then the, to be blunt, the Christian life becomes boring to you. It's, and it will be boring until you deal with a thing that's right there that needs to be let go of. That's why Paul wants obedience. That's why his goal is obedience so that we're not stuck in destructive patterns of consumption, materialism, pride, anger, screen addiction, alcohol addiction, exercise addiction, lack of exercise, too much sleep, not enough sleep. God's calling us to wholeness. It requires obedience. There's no other way to say it. It requires obedience, right? Right? So we want to obey Christ and follow. Why? Because anything outside of Christ's will is painful. What I was going to do this morning to illustrate painful is I was going to play a sound of fingernails on a chalkboard. I was going to, I was going to do that this morning. And when I put it on my iPad during my eight hours yesterday and played it, I was like, it's unbearable. I couldn't, I didn't, I couldn't do it to you. It's too painful. And yet, it's a perfect illustration because though you may not know it, when you're stuck and God is peeling away layers and you're saying, no, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. Like you are in such dissonance to the life for which you're created that you, you just will never be able to move. So the invitation to fullness of life is really good news. And, 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 and God's desire is for us to continue to allow these layers to be peeled away so that we have our own kind of story of transformation. Every, God's desire is that every one of us have a story of transformation. And one of the beauties of being able to be a pastor is I get to hear over and over and over and over again, stories of transformation. Tremendous stories of transformation. This guy was sharing a story with me this week of having a dream job. Like he was, uh, he loved skiing and he'd managed to uh, land a job as professional ski patrol in Vail. Doesn't get any better than that, right? Like and, like if you love skiing and that's your thing, and you're, you're not just skiing, you're ski patrol. You're not just ski patrol. You're ski patrol in Vail. You're not just volunteer ski patrol. You're like pro ski patrol. And all these rich people are letting him kind of caretake their houses. So he said, well, I'm just living in the best house, going from here to here to here, you know. He said, I did it for four years, and uh, uh, I learned that waking up to your dream job every day is boring. Isn't that interesting? Like, so he's got the perfect job, but no, somehow a meaning crisis. And then this guy calls him and says, hey, uh, he was an English major in college, my ski patrol friend. This guy calls him and says, hey, uh, there's an opening to teach in this private boarding school on the East Coast. Teach English. Think you should apply. He said, why don't you just assign me to a life of hell until the day I die? <laughs> but he's a Christian. And like that night, as he slept, he was like, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to apply. He said, I'll never, I'll never get the job. Well, I know that feeling here, Right. <laughs> Oh, sure, I'll apply. What? Like, what could happen? Be careful. <laughs> so he applies and he gets a job. And he said on day one, he knew, this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life. And he's now been, been teaching 34 years. Like, amazing. He didn't even know the way that God had wired him. And neither did I. And I'm going to take a leap here. Neither do you. So when God, like when God begins to peel away the layers and you have an opportunity, look, understand God wants to write a story better than the story you have in mind, better than you could ask, hope, or imagine. And I can tell you dozens of stories like this, but there's no time. But if you don't have a story like this, then you don't really have a witness. And the good news of the gospel is God wants to write those stories over and over and over and over again. It's a story of our lives being progressively transformed. Don't you love this? 2 Corinthians 3.18. From glory to glory to glory to glory so that more and more and more and more of Christ's abundance and joy are seen through you. That's evangelism. Then, the means. What does Paul say? Uh, In uh, uh, verse 18, he goes... I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. And then in verse 20, uh, he says, I aspire to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named so that I wouldn't build on another man's foundation. So uh, verse 18 and 19 first, we start there. A couple observations. First of all, Paul says, verse 18, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. This is pretty significant. Because what Paul is saying here is, I'm not, like, when I'm, quote-unquote, evangelizing or, quote-unquote, doing evangelism, I'm not arguing with you. I'm not proving that Jesus is this or that. Do you hear what I'm saying? Like, he says, look, it's not about words. Elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says the gospel is not about words. It's about power. Does Paul use words? Yes, he uses words. He preaches, he writes. In his preaching and writing, he seeks to persuade. But Paul understands that the most compelling evidence for the reality of Jesus is not your intellectual capacity, your capacity to debate, your capacity for logic, the boatloads of evidence regarding the resurrection of Jesus. The most compelling invitation is your story. And here's what happens in modernity. We don't have a story. Many of us don't have a story other than the transaction that we had with Jesus when we were 10 and and, and we signed a card, we got baptized and, and we know now we're going to heaven but we don't have a story. What has God done for you lately? And we're like this, I'm not sure. And so lacking a story, all we have is evidence. And now we set about proving that Jesus is the way. I'm just gonna say to you, your proof is not gonna be very convincing. Paul's strategy here, right? His means is his story. That's what he says. What, what God has done through me. No story, no witness. Years ago, I was at this thing uh, at, uh, up by Mount Baker. It was a ski retreat for international students from UW. And so they're all uh, from overseas and super smart. All like uh, masters and PhD people gathered together. And so, you know, I'm speaking at the thing and then there are breakout sessions. And I was, assigned to, I was assigned to a breakout session with all the scientists and I was told to give them evidence for the truth of Christianity. These people aren't believers, most of them. Just give them evidence for the truth of Christianity. Well, what is... These are scientists, man, are you kidding me? How am I gonna do that? So I did my research and I come in, you know, and I give my little lecture, you know, evidence for the resurrection, evidence for the uh, uh, viability uh, and trustworthiness of the text, archeological evidence. And here's a sign, like when I'm done, any questions? And it, I mean, it was a disaster. They were like, we're not convinced. I'm not convinced, are you kidding me? We need double blind studies. We need, we need objectivity. We need need firsthand witnesses. You're trying to convince me of this thing? You could never prove it. That's what this guy said. And so, you know, I'm absorbing all this and shrinking down in my chair. And then this guy from China, he says, I know God exists. And everyone was like, really? Tell us. And then this is, he shared a story. He said, "I I was an atheist. I was in Tiananmen Square, June 5th, 1989 or whatever the date was, 84, I can't remember. I was, I was in Tiananmen Square with all the violence, all the killing. And I know that uh, this is coming from a culture that's officially atheist. So this is what he said I'll never forget. I've seen with my eyes how people behave if there is no God. And I decided right then and there that if there is no God, humanity would already have already been destroyed. So I wanted to find the God who was preserving humanity. And now I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And then these scientists, one of them, this guy who said to me, your stuff is worthless. He didn't say it that way, but that's what he said. His response to this guy, he said, now I'm interested. Like, do you have a story? Because without a story, you don't have a witness. If all you have is what you did, Uh, when you came to Christ, then you need to live a life of surrender so that you being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit can have a story of transformation from glory to glory to glory. This is how God healed. This is how God guided. This is how God provided because it's your story that is your testimony. Which is why Paul says also in verse 19, um, my witness was filled with signs, wonders, and the power of the Spirit. Have you ever seen God work in a way that can only be attributed to God? That's part of your story. That's a compelling part of your story. And I'll just say here in verse 19, signs, wonders, power of the Holy Spirit. This, this power of the Holy Spirit is a thing. And we don't talk about it enough in our community. Uh, we can be... Misaligned in our community, focusing on Christ, the Jesus, but not the Holy Spirit. And it's very real for us to come in prayer to God and say, It is my desire because it is your will, Heavenly Father, that I be filled with the Holy Spirit and believe that by the fullness of the Spirit, our lives will be transformed. So this is very different, all this. Like your story, your power of the Holy Spirit, it's very different than what I call transactional evangelism. Like here's the evidence that Jesus is the way and I'm gonna argue you into the kingdom. No, transactional evangelism, it's not really evangelism. I think we should rename transactional evangelism the debate team and sales force. Because that's what it is. You want to debate, debate, it's fine. I mean, there's compelling evidence, no problem. But that's not witness. Witness is your story of transformation. So, this is why Paul has a strategy for evangelism, and this is with, with this we close. Paul is seeking to be, verse 20, incarnational to those who don't believe. In other words, he says, hey, I wanted to be with the Gentiles. I want to go where Christ had never been preached before. And if you want to follow in Paul's footsteps, it's tempting to think, oh, I there's no way I can. I can't go where, uh, where Christ has never been preached. Christ has been preached everywhere around here. To which I reply, no, Christ has not been preached everywhere around here. What we need to understand is that we live in a, uh, in, in a culture uh, where a different Jesus has been proclaimed. And Paul speaks in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 about the danger of, a, uh, of people rejecting a different Jesus before they ever encounter the true Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like if I reject a different Jesus and I think I've rejected Jesus, I haven't really rejected Jesus. I've rejected the caricature of Jesus. And Seattle is filled with people who have heard of Republican Jesus, Democrat Jesus, upwardly mobile Jesus, the Jesus who loves guns but not the environment, the Jesus who loves the environment but not life in the womb. But here's the thing. These are caricatures of Jesus. So people are rejecting Christianity without ever really meeting Jesus, because what they're rejecting isn't the suffering servant who loves all people and who invites us to live lives overflowing with joy and service and generosity and wisdom and peace as he peels away the layers of self-destructive behavior. I'd suggest most of Seattle hasn't heard of that Jesus, and until that Jesus is proclaimed, our work isn't done, and my hope is that in the coming year, we can be Heralds of that Jesus. I was chatting with some friends of mine who aren't believers. Uh, They said, they were asking about um, sermon series. Like, what are you preaching these days? And I told them in the fall, I'm thinking about preaching this series, thinking about, don't hold me to it, but thinking about this preaching series with a title for, so that we understand what God is for. So I'm talking to these people, they're not believers. I said, yeah, you know, God is for intimacy, for peace, for creation, for the end of violence, for freedom, for women, for the poor, for those without a voice, for beauty, for generosity, for courage, for healing. And this was their response, really? Because that's not what I'm hearing on the news. Like, let that sink in. God is for, and here's people's response, oh, who knew? Listen, if people don't know, shame on us. Because we're not saying. And now people are rejecting the real Jesus because they've never yet encountered the real Jesus. They've rejected the caricature. Satan's number one strategy. We need to reframe Christianity, man. Uh, The second part of Paul's strategy had to do with unity and a desire uh, to display to the world that Christians who believe differently uh, still serve the same Christ. And his unity strategy had to do with encouraging uh, like more liberal Christians to give an offering to the church in Jerusalem, which was more legalistic. But that's kind of beyond the scope of our time this morning, so I'm just going to say it and leave it there. The Declaration of the Good News is, like, you've heard us four spiritual laws. I'm going to give you three this morning. Number one, the world is in a fog right now, but we're headed up toward a summit where it's clear and beautiful. That's good news. Like, history's headed in a good direction. You, may not, you won't see it on the news, but the good news is, history's headed toward the breakdown of every dividing wall, the healing of every disease, the healing of every human heart, the reconciling of every broken relationship. Good news. Second number two good news. God's not mad. First John chapter two verse one. Christ the propitiation for sin, and not just our sins, the sins of the whole world, everybody. God's not mad. We're like people are running from God. People are mad at God. God's not mad. And number three. Everyone is created for a life of meaning. World is in a fog. God's not mad. Everyone's created for life of meaning. So come. Step into the story of hope that God is writing. Come. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Come. Uh, let go of that thing that's holding you back from God's better story. Come. All of your life is a living sacrifice so that you can really represent the good news in the way that God is inviting you to represent. And we together can be the presence of Christ and the heralds of good news in our city, let's pray. Father, I wanna thank you for the good news that's way, way better than anything we could really even fathom. Thank you for the trajectory of history. Thank you that you're not angry. Thank you that you have a plan for each of us, a life of joy and transformation. Father, this morning, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to sacrifice those things that are holding us back. And we need to allow you to speak into each of our lives. So may we respond now as you speak to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's worship together. I know there's a member of the prayer team over here on my right. who would be happy to pray with you uh, that you might be filled with all that God has for you as you deal with the things that God has spoken to you this morning. You can respond. Let's worship together.